Um, as today is Palm Sunday, and we had the privilege of ordaining both John Mink and, um, and Zach Schellebarger, uh, the Lord gave me a message, uh, and it's, it's a message about two men. And I know that on Palm Sunday, we recognize Jesus being recognized as king. But we studied that last week. We saw the 173,880 days from uh, Daniel 9 uh, in Nehemiah chapter 2. We witnessed the 483 years that Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, stood before Jerusalem and began to weep because had you not known this your day, as, as it had been declared at the beginning of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the clock began to tick. And to the day, prophetically speaking, Christ rode into Jerusalem and wept over the city because those who were educated and knew the coming of the king had rejected it for the sake of their own personal selfishness. We covered that last week. A lot of you are probably much like I was growing up or the family that I came from. We're in a holy week such as Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Uh, we called ourselves CEO Christians, Christmas and Easter only. And so you're here and maybe someone brought you uh, to service and every year you come maybe on Palm Sunday or Easter Sunday and you hear the same sermon. I tricked you today. Uh, you're not going to get a Palm Sunday service. That was last week. <laughs> you're going to get a Good Friday service. Good Friday is a picture, in a sense, of the crucifixion. I'm not going to go through the crucifixion. I'm going to show you what happened after the crucifixion. I'm going to share with you the lives of two men. And it's one that makes me think of John Mink and Zach Schallabarger. It was an admonition to the two of them, an exhortation to the two of them, that's not only for them, but for us as a body of believers. And so this morning, I want to share with you out of John chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 19. If you folks could pass out the scriptures for anyone who didn't bring it, I'd appreciate it. Just raise your hand. These guys will get you a Bible. John chapter 19. Bless you. Now before I have you stand for the reading of the word of the Lord... I want to put in context what it is we're going to be studying. Uh, at this point in, in John chapter 19, and we're going to study the four different accounts of this, this picture. At this point in John chapter 19, Jesus has been crucified. He's already walked the Via Dolorosa. Um, he's been beaten. As the Roman guards would tie his hands behind his back, they would put a cloth bag over his head with his hands tied behind his back. They would punch him. And they would say, prophesy who hit you. We were in the Antonio Fortress in Israel, and you pour water over the, the stone, and a relief of a game, much like a Monopoly game, but back in the Roman times, a relief of the game exposes on the stone itself, and it's what they commonly played called the king's game. And this area in the Antonio Fortress where the king's game is located, when the water goes over the stone, the, the game appears. It's one of the most profound places for me when I travel Israel because it was there that they began to mock Jesus and put a purple robe on him. They spat upon him. They placed the crown of thorns. And I've, I've seen the thorn bush from where the crown of thorns was fashioned. The thorns are three to five inches long. They pushed it into his skull. They took him outside and they beat him uh, with a cat of nine tails. Nine tails means nine straps of leather, flat. They would soak in water. And as you've ever seen leather, that's, it, it sticks to the item that's whipping. And then at the tips of each of the leather strands was a piece of glass shard or metal shard so that the leather would stick to the back, the, 
the shards would dig into the back and then it would be ripped off. They continued to beat him until his back was absolutely mangled. It says that no one had ever been marred, a visage had never been more marred than that of Christ. Uh, In Isaiah, it says that they pulled his beard out of his face. Uh, They crucified him and they put the nails in his wrist, the the spike in in his feet. They pierced his side. Uh, they, they put above his head, behold, king of the Jews. They spit on him. The two thieves on either side of him ridiculed and mocked him. They sneered at him. The bulls of Bashan, as it says in Psalm 22, uh, just, just the vile nature of what he endured as evil descended upon the earth and darkness came upon the earth. Scripture says that when Christ died, that the veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split. It said that the tombs were open and the dead walked and, and appeared to, to many. That's a creepy day and intense to say the least. But in the course of that, he died quickly. He bled out on the Via Dolorosa as he was called to carry his own cross and Simon the Cyrenian would help him carry that. But as he began to bleed from the beatings and the whippings, Finally, when he was up and when they pierced his side and says blood and water poured out, he had basically bled out. My dear friend, Bob Gainsley, who built this pulpit, uh, died at the age of 50. Uh, he, he bled out. I was with him. Um, I, I watched. He just bled out. He had had cancer. Uh, he couldn't hold anything down. I won't go into the gruesome details, but suffice it to say, that's what happened. There's nothing left. And actually, that day, he had greeted my, my wife and my two boys. The doctor just visited. I stayed with him through the process of time as he was getting sick, and I was helping, cleaning, doing laundry. Um, Sandy came and switched with me, and I drove home. As soon as I pulled in the, the driveway of my house, she called me and said, Bob just died. I came back, and there with the coroner, I helped um, take his body off the bed tenderly caring for my friend who I love deeply. And it was through that process as I was considering this message that the Lord spoke to me about these two men. And I thought about John and I thought about Zach. And so with that, would you stand for the reading of the word of the Lord? We're going to pick up at verse 38. And we'll be introduced to these two men. After this, meaning after the crucifixion and the death of Christ, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices, as as was the custom of the Jews, is to bury Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. I'll read some more while you're standing. This is the account of the same event in Luke chapter 23. Now, behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed, and he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever been lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. 
In the book of Mark, the account is now when evening, Mark 15, now when evening had come because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And so when he found out from the centurion, he granted, he gave, it was a gift, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph brought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen and he laid him in the tomb which had been hewn out of rock and rolled the stone against the door of the tomb. We also find the account in uh, Matthew chapter 27. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid it in the tomb which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. That's our passages. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. Lord, we see two men who tenderly and lovingly cared for a dead Jesus. They were willing to risk everything for a a dead king. And Lord, I pray today we would be moved by a risen king. Lord, bless our time, we pray. Lead us into all truth, Holy Spirit. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. Here in this passage of Scripture, uh, actually the four accounts that I've read to you all come out of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're an eyewitness to an accident on a four-cornered intersection and there's people on each corner uh, and you want to get an eyewitness account, everyone's going to have a different account. One person will say, I saw the car coming from the north. One person who was on the other side of the street will say, I saw the car coming from the south. Uh, One person will say, I saw the left side of the car. The other person will say, I saw the right side of the car. Each person will develop from their vision or from their vantage point uh, an understanding of what occurred. So here we find with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them having their insights given to them either by an eyewitness or a personal eyewitness themselves, an account of what occurred. In, three of the four, or in four of the four accounts, we have Joseph of Arimathea uh, depicted. In one of the four accounts, we have Nicodemus listed. It's John's account that we study this morning because we find both Joseph and we find Nicodemus listed in this account in, in John 19. Fascinating to me about these two men, we'll begin with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is found three times in Scripture. The first is a very fascinating portion of Scripture, and it's all found in the book of John. John reflects on Nicodemus in an account that he recorded that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It's actually one of the most famous verses in the entirety of the Bible. Many of you have seen it at football games, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, let's do it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. They hold that up at the field gold on the other side. You go, oh, John 3.16. And we look at that. That is the encapsulation of the gospel itself. For God so loved the world he gave as a gift, his son. Why? Blood must be shed for the remission of sin. A sinful man is separated from a holy God and Jesus, who was a sinless man, paid the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death. He paid the penalty to reconcile man to God. And so with this, he reconciles man to God uh, through John 3.16. Now, this is an account where God, uh, Jesus, God, is speaking to Nicodemus. 
Now the scripture says in John chapter 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, which means he was the main guy. He was the ruler of the Pharisees. He was the ruler. He, he oversaw all of the religious responsibilities of the Jews of that day. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, so he studied, he studied Daniel chapter 9, he has, he has looked at Psalm 22, he's seen Isaiah 53, he's looked at Nehemiah chapter 2, he's watched as all these prophetic verses of the scriptures that they hold are being fulfilled in this man, he's watching and reading and seeing all of this taking, taking place, and he comes to him and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. We've seen you raise the dead, we've seen the blind see and the lame walk and the deaf hear. We've, we've seen you feed thousands with a few loaves and fishes. We, we marvel at who you are, and we know that this is the hand of God himself. And as he, he declares this to Jesus, and he comes to him at night, and he says, I know you're of God. I'm the religious leader. I recognize this. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, by the way, that's where we get the term. Jesus said it. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? I, I, I be born again. I can't fathom what you're saying. Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And, and, and all of this baffles Nicodemus to the point where Nicodemus answers and says to him in verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus' response to Nicodemus is, are you not the master teacher of Israel? And you? Don't get this? Of all the people, you have, you have, memorized, you have memorized Psalm 119 by the time you're 13. You, you, you know all of the, the, the Pentateuch. You, you know all the, the first, you know everything. The first five books of the Bible you've got memorized. You can, you've gone through the testing. You, you, are, you have been acknowledged by every religious leader in all of Israel that you were the master teacher and you're telling me you can't fathom this concept of the Messiah? And then he goes on to declare that, that being born again, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. This is the Messiah of which the scriptures speak. I am the Messiah. Nicodemus is moved by that. But he's a secret follower of Christ. At one time, he almost reveals his hand in John chapter 7. And in John chapter 7, he almost reveals his hand by declaring... <clears throat> to all of the gathering of the religious leaders, the crowd that does not know the law is a curse. And Nicodemus, he came to Jesus by night, being one of them. He said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? He's trying to defend Jesus in the gathering of all the religious leaders. And they yell at him and they say, they answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Shut up, Nicodemus. You may be the leader, you may be the ruler of all of us religious, you know, doctors, but, but please, nobody comes from Galilee. And Nicodemus is silenced. We don't see him again until John 19. In John 19, he reveals himself to come alongside with Joseph of Arimathea. And, and he comes to him at night and he, and he brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Now the 100 pounds that he brings with him, I just want you to know this is unbelievably expensive. We know that Nicodemus was the third wealthiest man in all of Israel. They said of Nicodemus that his daughter's wedding was so resplendent and opulent that no one could equal it. He was unbelievably wealthy. Probably the wealthiest man in Israel was Joseph of Arimathea. These two men together, 
decided to care for the body of Jesus. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, as we've seen through the other four accounts that we've read this morning, he was a just man. It says in the Talmud that he was one of the 14, or excuse me, in the Mishnah, he's one of the 14 just men of Israel. He loved God. He was a good and just man. And, and he had not consented to their decision indeed to kill and crucify Christ. He stood in opposition before the Sanhedrin, before the Pharisees. He stood in opposition to what they were doing to Jesus. He put his life on the line. He was going to lose his wealth. He was going to lose his identity. He was going to lose everything because he was standing in defense of Christ. He didn't consent to their decision or their deed that we saw in Luke 23. We know that he was from Arimathea, but interestingly enough, even being from Arimathea where his father was buried, his mother was buried, all of his relatives were buried, he longed to be buried in Jerusalem. He wanted to be as close to the Lord as possible in the temple itself that he had paid to have a, a, a tomb hewn out of the solid rock. Long before there was dynamite, long before there were pneumatic tools, it had to be done, bink, bink, bink. If anyone's ever been to Gordon's Calvary, you can see in Gordon's Calvary this tomb hewn out of rock. You walk inside of it and you see every chisel mark that has created this tomb. A tomb of a wealthy man. We also see the site of the Holy Sepulchre, depending on what you believe to be the location of Christ. I know not. However, even if you go into the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre, you can see this tomb hewn from the rock. Painstakingly exhaustive, very expensive, only done for a wealthy man. And Joseph of Arimathea was fearless. When Christ had died, and the veil was torn, and the earth shook, and the dead rose, and darkness came across the earth, and we know darkness came because we can see uh, 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 writings that are not biblical, Roman writings that declare that it wasn't during an eclipse, the darkness fell upon all of the Roman Empire. We know that happened the day that Christ died. We see these accounts by Josephus. Interestingly enough, you know who Josephus is? Josephus is the brother of Nicodemus Ben-Gurion. That's Nicodemus' last name, Nicodemus Ben-Gurion. His brother was Josephus, the historian. Fascinatingly enough, Joseph of Arimathea, after the earthquake and after all the things occurred in the darkness and the heaviness fell upon the earth, he went right into Pilate and went to the top, had access to the court of this king. He walked in and he said, give me the body of Jesus. The body would be surrendered to the family members, but Pilate agreed to give, gift the body to Joseph of Arimathea. The only other place we see in scriptures of the word gift in this context where it's a gift, no strings attached, the only other place we see it is in first, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that God has given us all things unto godliness. It's a gift. He gifts the body to Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea takes with him in his preparation and, and coming to get the body of Jesus along with Nicodemus, he brings with him what is called the Tachrahim. The Tachrahim. This is a linen. It's probably 14 feet long by 4 feet wide. They would lay the body on the linen and then wrap the body in the linen. They would put uh, um, a cord around the jaw to keep the mouth shut and they would tie the body in the linen and then they would put the body in the tomb. But before they did this, fascinatingly enough, you have Nicodemus Ben-Gurion, the brother of Josephus the historian, the third wealthiest man <clears throat> on the face of the earth, or excuse me, in Israel. 
And as the third wealthiest man in Israel, his opulent daughter's wedding, what we find is following this account, church history declares and so does tradition declares that his daughter who'd had the opulent wedding shortly thereafter, Nicodemus was impoverished and moved in with Gamaliel, the other teacher of Israel. He lived with him till the day that he died because he had been impoverished. They find accounts of his daughter having to glean from the threshing floor barley to stay alive because the entire family had lost their fortune after Nicodemus had chosen to follow Christ and to stand for him. I remember being with Governor Bobby Jindal and he said, Rob, what are the things that you're uncompromising? And I told him and I said, he said, Rob, those are things you're willing to lose an election on. He would go on further to say that when they asked me the most significant event in my life, he said, it's when I received Christ as my savior and my consultant you know, was just so dissatisfied with my answer. He said, you don't win elections saying that. He said, listen, to his consultant, everyone sitting at the table, he said, I lost my family when I came to Christ. I'm from a Hindu family. Do you think I'm afraid to lose an election? And here, Nicodemus isn't afraid to lose anything, and he did lose everything. He was the master teacher of Israel, but Gamaliel, he took him into his home until the day he died. Now, Joseph comes, and Joseph of Arimathea comes, and he brings the linen. Nicodemus brings all of the aloes and the myrrhs and all the ointments, which are fit for the, a burial of a king. The Tachrahim comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and Ezekiel 16, that in Jewish tradition, whether you were wealthy or poor, you'd be buried the same way. Naked you came into the world, naked you would leave. In Ecclesiastes 5.15, as he came from his mother's womb naked, shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. The Egyptians would fill the rooms of the dead with all of their possessions, but in Israel, you came naked into the world and you'll leave naked. You'll only stand before God in your character. Ezekiel declares, then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. You see, this is, this is the way that they would care for the body in the Jewish culture. We find another account of it in Acts chapter 9 when Dorcas, um, um, Tabitha, not Dork, Dorcas. They're giggling. Stop that. <laughs> Tabitha. Uh, this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. This tachrahim, this, this 14-foot-long linen shroud, it was uh, fascinating how they would apply it. There was an event that they would do before they would place the body in this linen shroud. However, can you imagine Joseph and Nicodemus coming to Golgotha? You know, we picture a cross high in the, in the landscape and Jesus way above, but crosses weren't like that. Crosses were put in the ground and they were so low to the ground that the jackals would come and eat the lower extremities of, of those being crucified. They would probably need a stool to get up and take with a pry bar uh, the nails out of the wrists of the Lord. They would have to pull the larger spike out of his feet. Other accounts declare that they wrapped his arms in linen so that his body wouldn't fall. And you can imagine how uh, delicately they cared for him. I reflected on this because when I was with the, the hospice and we had to put um, my friend Bob's body 
on the gurney. We had to get him out of the bed. And he was lifeless. And I didn't want him to hit hard. It took all my strength to hold him as the other man's as well. And we wanted to lay him down with tenderness and, and gentleness. And we lifted him. And we tucked his arms in. And we tucked his legs in. I said goodbye to him. I remember when my mother died. Her lifeless body laying in the bed. And each of her four children would come and give a kiss to the face that we remembered so well. I remember holding her beautiful hands that caressed me as a child and cared for me. She had the loveliest hands. The tenderness with which we cared for Bob and we cared for my mother. You can imagine Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the tenderness in which they applied to the body of Christ. As they removed him from the cross, and this is not the work of rich men. Their hands had never done manual labor probably a day in their lives, trying to figure out how to pry those spikes out of his bloodied hands, blood covering them, flies, stench. They brought him to the location where the tomb would be. I visited Gordon's Calvary and located at Gordon's Calvary is a cistern, a well. And with every Jewish tradition, they have what is called the tachora. It's a washing stone. The washing stone is found in the, whole, the site of the Holy Sepulcher. There's also a tachora that's located in Gordon's Calvary. They would lay the body on the washing stone and Pastor Marty told me how to pronounce this and I've already butchered it Chura Kadesh I believe it's pronounced the Chura Kadesh is a holy community I mistranslated it as a secret society but a holy community I had a friend share an account of when their loved one, their, their father had died in Israel of cancer. And they laid the body, the, the, the members of the Kadesh laid the body on the Tachora, the, the washing stone. And the men washed the men's body, the women's washed the women's body. And as the deceased is on the stone, the woman was in the other room, the daughter, and listening. And she could hear tenderly uh, from the other room, Mr. Cohen, we're going to wash your face now. Mr. Cohen, we're going to comb your hair now. Mr. Cohen, we're going to roll you over and we're going to clean your back now. And they would speak to him with tenderness and concern and care. In the Mishnah, the Tahorah took precedent over the Shabbat, the Sabbath. You see, when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took Christ's body off the cross and brought him to the washing stone and began to place him on the Tahorah and wash his body, they defiled themselves. They could not participate in the Passover, let alone the Shabbat. They were defiled for seven days, having touched a dead body. But this is called the Mitzvah. 
It's, it's the highest honor because you, you do something for someone they could never repay. They would defile themselves to care for the body of Christ and they would be removed from their family. They would miss the highest Jewish holiday to bathe the body of the king. And it's not enough to hear Howard Hendricks and others say that they washed the body of Christ. I think to myself, as I reflect back on Bob Gainsley and my, my mother, and I think of the story of Mr. Cohen, I can imagine Nicodemus, and I can imagine Joseph of Arimathea saying, Jesus, we're going to wash your face now. As they remove from his skull the three to five inch thorns that are embedded into his skull. They see the area where they're wiping the blood stain from the beard that had been pulled from his face. As they gently dab the water upon the swollen features of his marred visage, his face. They wipe the blood from the piercings in his wrists, his feet, they wipe the blood from the spear in his side. And they say, Jesus, we're going to roll you over now. I would think that in Psalm 22, the words would echo through his mind or their minds. They pierced my hands and my feet as they would reflect on Psalm 22:16. As they rolled him over and they saw the ghastly work of the Romans. They would take the cloth and they would wash his body on the Tahorah. I would think that Psalm 53 would echo through their mind and they would probably recite it as they were bathing him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed as they're dabbing each one. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what iniquity that was as they saw the brutality of man upon the body of the king. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. They reflected back upon the intensity of the Via Dolorosa and the beatings as they tenderly and lovingly washed the dead body of the king. Jesus, we're going to lay you on the linen cloth now. As they tenderly lift his body and they place it on the 14-foot linen cloth, the shroud. They bring the ends up, they tie his feet and his head, and they begin to lovingly embalm him with the myrrh and the aloe. A hundred pounds saturating every aspect of his body, taking away the stench of death, covering him in the fragrance of love. 
And then they take him into the tomb, the new tomb that was hewn for Joseph of Arimathea, meant for a rich man, but given to the dead body of their king. As they lovingly lay him in the tomb, they together push with all effort the stone, probably with the help of the servants, and they seal the tomb. And as they walk away, their bodies are covered in the blood of their Savior. They're bloodied, their hearts are broken, and they're defiled. They can't be around their family, they can't be around their friends, they're completely defiled. On Sunday, we'll celebrate Matthew 28, a week from today. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled the stone back from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him, because he was, they were like dead men. I don't know if the earth shook because Christ arose or the angel descended. They went quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and they ran to give the disciples word that the Savior had arisen. Scripture goes on to say that he appeared to witnesses. Paul says there was over 500 in Galilee that he appeared to. I was thinking about the ones that he appeared to. They were probably numerous. I can think that there would be a centurion and a servant that were witnesses. I know that Joseph and Nicodemus saw him. There was the leper that had been healed that witnessed as Jesus reappeared. <coughs> the, widow of, the widow of Nain, a paralytic, his four friends, who had lowered Jesus through the roof, or excuse me, lowered their friend to Jesus through the roof. There was a man who was once called Legion, who ran naked through the tombs of the Gadarenes who is now in his right mind, I guarantee you, Jesus appeared to him. Of the other witnesses, I'm, I'm certain that there was Jarius and his wife and most certainly Jarius' daughter. There was the woman with the issue of blood. I share all this because what's fascinating to me about all of this is that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they were wealthy men. And their bodies now were bloodied and their hearts were broken and they've been defiled and couldn't be with their families. And when Jesus reappeared, I imagine, with the same eyes that they had closed with their fingers, as they put the shroud over his face, they now looked at him in his resurrected body. And you can imagine Jesus looking at them and, and saying, you cared for my body. You treated me so gently. You're so courteous. You can imagine their heart soaring, witnessing the resurrected Christ. For Joseph and for Nicodemus, what... What would Passovers be like for them for the rest of their lives? 
What would Sundays be like? What would the Shabbat be like? What would communion be like? My body broken for you, my blood shed. We wiped that blood. We loved and cared tenderly for that body. Tradition says in the fourth century that the tombs of three men were found together. There was a tomb of Nicodemus, Gamaliel, and Stephen. They were buried together. Gamaliel cared for Nicodemus until he died. Gamaliel, we would find in the book of Acts, would be moved by the things of the Lord. He would say, if it's of God, it will survive. If it isn't, it'll be destroyed. Excuse me. On August 3rd in the calendar, the Roman calendar, we celebrate, or they did, what was known as St. Nicodemus of Kafragamala, which means St. Nicodemus of the house of Gamaliel. They remained together until death, according to church tradition. And when we think of Joseph of Arimathea, March 17th, we celebrate it today as St. Patrick's Day. But any Catholic in the room would know that this is St. Joseph of Arimathea on the calendar. You see, Philip sent, as church tradition says, sent Joseph to England to preach the gospel. Simon Elodis declares this to be true in his writings. And he's no longer known in England as Joseph of Arimathea. He is known as Joseph of Glastonbury, who was the first to preach the gospel in England. I think about this. These two men who gave up everything for a dead Jesus. They had lost everything. And if they were to be in our church today, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, the wealthiest man in Israel, Nicodemus, the, second, or the third wealthiest man in Israel, and they came to our church, what would we want from them? Would you, would you be willing to put on a financial seminar for us? You're the wealthiest of men. Can you tell us how you got rich? You're godly men. How do you amass wealth? Today in the church in America, what can we do to make us happy? And they would look at you as they have stood in the presence of the Lord for over 2,000 years now. The only remnant of the crucifixion echoing in heaven we find in Revelation 5, verse 6, and I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. And they've been there for 2,000 years and they said, I washed those wounds. I lost everything on this earth and I stand in the presence of the one who matters most. And we as a church would say, how do we make money? And they would look and they would say, we will not do a financial seminar for you. No, we will tell you of Jesus Christ. We'll tell you of his crucifixion, his burial and his resurrection. We will speak of his wounds that we washed, the price that he paid to redeem you and me. 
the Via Dolorosa, we saw every whipping on his body and we washed every wound. We will speak of the price that was paid and the glory of his resurrection when we looked into the eyes that we had once closed that pierced us with love we have never known. And standing in the glory of the Lord for 2,000 years, they can speak clearly. There in the midst of all of heaven is the lamb with the marks of his slaughter. And they will say to us, no longer be secret disciples. Stand for the Lord. We're ashamed of the gospel. We want the path of least resistance. We're concerned if we're going to lose our earthly possessions. And they would say, what we did, we did for a dead Jesus. But you, us, we're called to do for a resurrected Jesus. When I think of Zach and John, I close with this thought. The hardest calling in the ministry is to wash the wounds in the body of Christ. Nobody tends to put much value on that. We want the power of the resurrection without seeing the cost of it. You see, in ministry, you have to get into the nooks and crannies of the bloodiness of the body. The room is filled with hurt and wounds. And they're to be tenderly and lovingly washed. And you'll lose everything in doing it. And you'll be rejected. You'll be misunderstood. But you do it anyways. I think about how fickle the body of Christ is. We are members of his body. Do we lovingly care for it? Do we tenderly wash it? Or when we're offended, do we walk out? We won't even do for a wounded body, let alone for a resurrected one. He's given us the power of the resurrection and all that is necessary for godliness. And he calls us to care for one another. And what Joseph and Nicodemus did for the dead body of Jesus, we can do for the resurrected one. Give it everything you've got. Everything. Because one day you'll be standing with them and you'll see the lamb that was slain and you too can say, I wash those wounds. I love that body. I tenderly and lovingly cared for it. We're all ministers. May the Lord touch you with this message. 
and empower you to serve his bride, his body, in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of the testimony of Joseph and Nicodemus. We thank you, Lord, for the picture of their lives and how they tenderly and lovingly cared for a dead Jesus and have encouraged us this day to do the same for a living Jesus who's been resurrected. We long for Resurrection Sunday. We declare you to be the king. We praise you for the work that you've begun. You're faithful to complete. Lord Jesus, as you said to Nicodemus, unless one be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The apostle Paul declares, if we believe in our heart and confess with our tongue, Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. As Nicodemus had to be born again and make a public profession and stand for Christ. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you've never given your heart to the Lord and this, this Palm Sunday is the day that you want to identify yourself with Jesus Christ. You realize that his death upon the cross paid the penalty for all of your sins, past, present, and future. You want to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life and with the multitudes in heaven declare that this was the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world for the forgiveness of my sins. I want to give him my life. I want to live for a resurrected Savior. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond, to receive this gift. As the body of Christ was given by Pilate to Joseph, he had to receive it and care for it. He had to respond to that gift. Today, the Lord gives you a gift. I'm going to ask you to respond in just a moment, real simply, by when I say, do you want to receive Christ as your Savior? I'm going to ask you by an act of faith in just a moment to raise your hand. And you say, well, that's really simple. Yes, it's simple for us, but it cost him everything. So as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, the most profound moment in your life right now the spirit of the living God says to you, do you want to become a Christian? Do you want to receive Christ as your savior? And I ask you now, if you want to do that, I ask you right now to raise your hand. Please raise them. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Any others? Nothing to be ashamed of. God bless you. Father, thank you for those who've responded to salvation. I praise you and thank you for this day and the angels in heaven rejoice over those who have given their heart to Christ. Lord, bless them, strengthen them as you did to Joseph and as you did to Nicodemus. And God, thank you for your word today in Jesus' name. Amen? Let's clap for those who gave their heart to the Lord.